Amen. Brethren, would you open your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We continue on looking at this glorious grand epistle that was given to us. We're going to be looking today primarily at verses 2 through 4, even as last week we looked at verses 1 and then 6 and 7 about our calling and commission um, as bond servants of the Lord as well as saints set apart to the gospel. But we're going to see today uh, very clearly what I'm going to call the substance of the gospel. This is a glorious passage today in verses 2 through 4 because the Apostle Spirit through the Apostle Paul is going to really hone in on Jesus and show us the glory and the beauties of Jesus as the centerpiece and the substance of all of our hopes in the Lord and all of our redemption hopes. It's all about Jesus. So if you'd stand, I'm going to read Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Father, give us the grace today to see and savor Jesus, to not only to praise Him, but to prize Him as our chiefest and highest treasure, not only to exalt Him with our words, but to exult in Him with our hearts and our affections, that Jesus may be for us that true uh, treasure above all things, He in whom we delight the most, and that He would be delighted in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, brethren. We saw last week, the Apostle Paul describes himself here in verse 1 as one who was set apart to the gospel. Paul was set apart to the gospel of God, as he calls it, by Jesus himself, as were all the other apostles. That was a mark of the apostles. Paul was set apart to the gospel by Jesus even before he was born. We're told in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says there, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me, and so on. So just as with Jeremiah and some of the other prophets of old, Paul was explicitly separated to the gospel of God even before, you know, from his mother's womb, he says, this was long before he was actually called to the gospel of God. This is an important point. He was set apart by the Lord Jesus to this work, separated and called out to proclaim and to, to bear the news, to be an ambassador for Jesus. He was called to proclaim and to go about declaring the salvation of the Lord throughout all the nations, or the Gentile nations, the namely that the triune God was reconciling and redeeming men to himself. Paul was set apart 
as Jesus' apostle to herald the good news of this salvation. God's predetermined purpose to save his people included the decree to call, as we saw, to convert, captivate, and commission Paul first as a bond slave and as an apostle, separated out to proclaim this good news, he says, the good news of God. The good news from God, as well as the good news about God. The gospel of a God who is both just and justifies the ungodly, who is through Jesus reconciling the world to themselves, not imputing their sins against them. That the day of salvation had come, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God had drawn near, and redemption, as promised through the prophets, had drawn nigh. This gospel, as we've seen, is good news, but it's not just for Paul, as we saw last week, that he himself was called, commissioned, captivated, set apart to be an apostle. But as we saw in verse 6 and 7, brethren, that you and I, we too are called in the scriptures, we are bond servants of the Lord, just like Paul. We don't own ourselves. That's a fundamental reality. If we are God's people, we are His and He is ours. We are not our own. We don't live to ourselves. Whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's and He is ours. So we are in His service. We are called to be saints, a royal priestly people set apart like Paul, separated to the cause of the gospel, though in a different way than Paul. Paul's as called as an apostle. We were called as saints. But brethren, that calling as saints is one that shapes and molds us and should cause us to see all that we do with respect to our royal priestly calling to be mediators between us and ministers in Jesus' name before us and the world, the people with whom we come in contact day after day, our children, our families, saints, as well as sinners, to see everything as opportunity, to see everything as, Lord, would you give me wisdom, give me words, give me opportunity because I desire this day to be used by you in my priestly ministry ministry to minister the goodness of the gospel of God and the God of the gospel. That's what we're about. That's our calling. But as we're going to see today then, brethren, our, the gospel of God to which Paul says he is set apart and which we are set apart is all about the person and work of the Son of God. So that's going to be our focus today in verses 2 through 4. Let's consider first of all, Verse 2, the first point I would have us to see is that this gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of the greatness, glorious goodness of the blessed God and His redemption of the world and his, of His people, this gospel was promised and prophesied beforehand by God. And this is a significant point. Verse 2, we're told there that this gospel of God was one which He promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. There's a few things we can uh, clearly assert and deduce from that. The fact that God promised and prophesied beforehand of this good news of redemption through the coming Messiah, through the Son, of bringing in the lost sheep of Israel, of gathering all the nations together as the people of Abraham under that covenant that he might bless them all. This glorious gospel was one that had first of all before it was declared, it was foreordained, right? God had determined from the beginning that this gospel, from all the way back to Genesis 3.15, 
when we read earlier today about Adam. And what was the promise there, though? The Lord said that even there, that there will be a seed that will come from the woman. And that seed is going to stomp on, he's going to crush the serpent's head, even though his heel would be bruised. <laughs> he, would, he would have marks left on him eternally because of it, but he would redeem and crush the serpent's head. He would break the bondage of the people of God, of the seed of the woman, and restore them to himself and bring them back to the garden, back to dominion, back to righteousness, ruling and fruitfulness in Jesus' name. So this gospel was foreordained. It was prepared uh, beforehand by God. Look at Acts chapter 2 real quickly. Let's, let's flip to Acts chapter 2. The Apostle Peter, this is a familiar passage, but um, we'll keep this handy. But regarding this foreordination in the middle of Peter's sermon, this is just a marvelous verse to commit to memory. Peter, speaking there on the day of Pentecost, speaks there of Jesus having been attested by God to you, miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through Jesus in your midst. Verse 22, as you yourselves know. But then it says this, that Jesus, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, and so on. So the first point there is Jesus is being very clear that what you did, you Jews, when you, by lawless hands, real evil, of the enmity, the enmity and the hatred of your heart for God and for His image, His Son, Jesus, and out of the pride and arrogance of your heart, serving Satan, him you delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Jesus' death, brethren, was foreordained from before the foundations of the world. The Bible says that he was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. It was impossible that anything other could happen. And that should give us comfort, brethren, knowing that the crosses that Jesus was called to bear, but then by implication, everyone that you and I are called to bear, in His name. They come from a God whose redemptive purpose includes those crosses for the sake of restoration and fruitfulness. The humiliation always precedes the exaltation. So with Christ, so with us. But brethren, everything that will come into your life, every thorn that you bear in Jesus' name, every humiliation that you endure for the cause of Christ or cross that you're called to, call, called to bear in His name, it comes about by the predetermined foreknowledge and for purpose of God. There are no accidents in God's eternal plan. They are actually for your good. Even Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord chastens those whom He loves. He brings these things about and they're painful. No discipline for the present time is, is joyful but painful, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness in those who have been trained by it. Brethren, just as a Jesus, my call to you today is when we see that this gospel was foreordained, including the cross upon Jesus that would purchase our salvation, don't chafe under the crosses He calls you to bear in His name. Remember, brethren, His yoke is kind what the Greek word there means. His yoke is kind. His burden is light. 
These momentary light afflictions, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, are working for us a far more greater and eternal weight of glory. Look to Jesus, your suffering servant, Savior, and remember that your cross is too or foreordained. But also, it was foretold. It was prophesied, he says. I mean, even right there in Acts, it was looking a little earlier in chapter 2, Peter speaks of how everything that has happened here, he quotes extensively from, from Joel there, starting in verse 17, it will come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and so on, your sons and daughters will prophesy, and so on. And he talks there about how this was predicted by Joel, um, down in verse 25. You'll notice that he quotes there from David, the Spirit of the Lord speaking prophetically through David, I foresaw the Lord always before my right, before my face, Psalm 110, at my right hand I will not be shaken, and so on. I mean, we could heap up Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah, but the point we want to make here is that he says explicitly in 34, verse 34 and 35, same thing, David sin says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The prophet's continually speak of this suffering servant, Savior, King, who would come. And it was foretold, whatever God intends to do, He speaks beforehand, the Scripture says, through His prophets. He puts His word in the mouth of His prophets. And it, likewise, not only was it foreordained and foretold, but this gospel of God was fulfilled. It actually was procured. Chapter 3, verse 18 of Acts, that's Peter's uh, second sermon there, but... Uh, Peter says there very clearly, he says, verse 18, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. He has brought it to pass. So not only was it foreordained, not only was it foretold, but by God's sovereign purpose and ordination, it was decisively and irrevocably brought to pass in time and history. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He overcame the works of the evil one. To, for our redemption, even all the way to the cross. It was fulfilled by the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, according to God's eternal covenant. And this means then, brethren, that God is faithful. There's the takeaway. He is faithful to the gospel. He is faithful to the God of the gospel. And therefore, He is faithful to the gospel of God. Jesus said, All power and authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go ye therefore baptize the nations, and so on. Jesus said that he is the one who must rule and reign. Paul said of Jesus that he is the one who must rule and reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. He is the one through whom, with that power and authority, is the one who will sovereignly cause his gospel to go forth through his church, which is his body, and will conquer in time and history. Brethren, the certainty of the, the gospel of the kingdom going forth, of the victory of the kingdom of God through the yield, wielding of the uh, sword of the Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel through His church is as certain and decisive and definitive as God's commitment to His own glory and zeal is for His namesake. Which means, brethren, because I know that God is fully committed for his zeal, for his glory, and for man's good to himself, that means the gospel of God will prevail. I know that. I need not doubt it. This also has some implications about the Holy Scriptures. I mean, number one, we're told that 
Uh, it's promised before through his prophets, but this was done in the Holy Scriptures. The Scripture specifically speaks of the written word of God. Right? So the prophets spake as they were directed uh, by the Spirit. Um, holy men of God speaking as they were under the influence of the Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1 tells us that. But specifically, Paul says here that this was done through the Holy Scriptures. That means that the scriptures, number one, they're spiritual. They are breathed out. They are the word of God just as much as the spoken words of the prophets. That which was spoken by them also was written down in scripturated in the holy scriptures, and they are the word of God codified for us. The implications, of course, for our doctrine of scripture, number one, that first that there is God, then there's the promise of God we see in this text. God, then the promise of God that he wills to make. And then there are prophets we see here through whom he spoke, but then that the Lord through those prophets committed it to writing, as our confession says. And we have it there, which means necessarily, brethren, we must have a very high view. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but brethren, having a very high view of the written word of God of the written word of God. We're told in 2 Timothy 3 that Timothy from his childhood had known the scriptures. He had known this exact same phrase. Timothy, Paul says, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. Right? That you would rightly divide the word of truth. Because Timothy had been brought up and his mother Lois and his grandmother Eunice had taught him and read to him the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament. He had been taken to the synagogue. He had heard the word read and preached, and he had embraced it. He loved the scriptures, brethren, so too for you. And not just old children. I want to exhort you as your pastor. <laughs> Love the word of God. Go to your parents. Say, Mom and Dad, would you put on for us would you let me listen to my audio Bible about the stories of God and of his word? I love listening about Jesus or about Moses or Joshua. There's audio Bibles all over the place. But say, Lord, I just want to listen to those stories again. They'll shape you. They will mold you and they will work faith in you because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 2 that the word is spiritual, that the, the word of God reveals to us the mind of God to spiritual men discerning spiritual truth, comparing spiritual things. The idea here, brethren, is that since the word was breathed out by the Holy Spirit directly, and since the Holy Spirit dwells in us, the author dwells in us corporately and individually, that this word here, brethren, is supernatural, not just in its origin, but it's in its power. I want to exhort you, brethren, when you go to the scriptures, do you just open them up and say, okay, here's my daily reading for today. You're to check it off. Or do you say, no, before I open this word, I stop, I pray and say, Lord, this is the word of God breathed out by the spirit, interpreted, illuminated by the spirit within me. So Lord, let me see great and glorious things in your word. Illumine to my eyes the supernatural truth that is in this word today. Brethren, when you open your word of God, a supernatural transaction, spiritual transaction is to be taking place. This is not like any other novel. This is not like any word of men. This is spiritual. Pray that the spirit of God would open your eyes when you read the word, that he would press it deeply on you and let it shape and mold you. 
And it's sanctified. The scriptures are set apart. The holy, it says here the holy scriptures, which is interesting. The word holy is the same word that's translated saints in verse 6. Hagios. So brethren, a saint is a holy one. It's one that is set apart to God. The scriptures are holy, set apart to God for his purposes. So brethren, in the same way, the scriptures are set apart. They're sanctified by God. The scriptures are separated to the gospel and the glory of God just as much as the saints are. The holy scriptures are the effectual holy tool given by the holy God. It's his holy scalpel to use upon his holy ones, his saints, in order to form and shape and prune holy character in them. It's what the scriptures are. And it's a holy scalpel and a holy sword for holy use by his holy ones, not just on his holy ones, but for use by his holy ones to advance his purpose in the world. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, by which we resist the power of the devil, make him flee, by which we quote and we pray and we declare verbally the truths of this word in the presence of angelic hosts as well as demonic hosts who hear and we say thus says the Lord this is true and brethren the word of God has the power in it through God to shake and transform the heavens to mold the world the Bible is no ordinary book brethren it is a spiritual powerful book as Hebrews says discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, separating between joints and marrow, getting to the deep things. Brethren, let us love the Word of God. But secondly, I want you to have a disposition to love the gospel of God. I want you to have a disposition to love the Holy Scriptures, to love them, to yearn for more of the Word of God. But secondly, I want us to focus on real quickly the second thing, which is the person and the power of God's Son. Because Paul says here that this gospel of God, which was uh, promised before through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, is one, this gospel concerns His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and so on. So there's two key things I'd have us to see. Number one, Paul is going to speak here about Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man. And then we'll see lastly about the Son of David specifically. But he, he refers to Jesus here as the gospel is concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and so on. And then in verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God. What's the implications of this? Well, number one, Jesus is the son of God. This speaks of his exaltation. It speaks of Jesus as the only begotten. When we read that in your King James Version, you read that in our, our translation, say only begotten. The word only begotten, again, doesn't mean that Jesus, think back to our, our, our Nicene Creed, you know, God of God, very God, light of light, begotten, not made, right? Jesus was not made. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He is eternally proceeding from the Father, Right? He always has been. He always was with the Father, is God, very God of very God. He is the Word who is with the Father, and so on. But Jesus, the idea of only begotten means the idea that Jesus is a Son of God, but He is the unique Son of God. The word behind that trans word only begotten literally is the Greek. It's monogonase. And what it means is one of a kind, right? One of, literally one of a genus, <laughs> 
you science folks. He is the unique one unto himself who alone is the eternal Son of God, the image of God, the express image of his person, and so on. So Jesus, when Paul says here that this gospel concerns the Son of God, this isn't just a, a passing title. Well, that's nice. Let's call him the Son of God. There's, it's his massive implications. This is about, the gospel is about Jesus, who is very God of very God, who God sent, we'll see later on in Romans chapter 8, it says in Romans chapter 8 that God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh implying that Jesus always was the Son of God even before He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus didn't become the Son of God in His incarnation. He always was the Son of God who came and took on flesh and became Son of Man. Jesus speaks in John 17, He says, of the glory that He had with the Father before the worlds were. Right? Jesus is the eternal, unique Son of God. Very God of very God, as we said, one substance with the Father. Romans nine chapter, uh, Romans chapter nine verse five. The Apostle Paul later in the same epistle, like I said, he said that Jesus came according to the flesh. But then he says that he ends with this. He says Jesus came according to the flesh, who is over all, even God blessed forever. Did you catch that? Jesus came in incarnation according to the flesh but that Jesus is over all things who is God blessed forever. Brethren, that's a stark claim even right here in Romans of the eternal deity and authority of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It says here he was declared, as I said, to be the Son of God with power, verse 4. The Greek word behind the word declared has the idea of proclaiming, announcing, heralding something. Jesus didn't become, as I said, he didn't become the Son of God at his baptism or at his transfiguration or his resurrection. Rather, in those events and since through his apostles, through his church, he was declared to be the Son of God, declared before all to be the eternal Son of God. Right? So when we get to the baptism and we see there Jesus being baptized and we hear the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father wasn't saying, He's been baptized and anointed, He's become my son. He's telling all, This is who He is. And the baptism is proof of that eternal reality. So too at the transfiguration. He also refers to Him here um, in this text. He says, the son, uh, concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Real quickly, Jesus, as you know, Matthew one twenty one, Jesus speaks of him as the Savior, the Lamb, the priest, the suffering servant who comes and his specific goal and mission is to save his people from their sins. So the gospel is about the eternal Son of God. You shall call his name Jesus because he will come and he will save his people from their sins. And then look what he says here. Concerning his son... Jesus Christ, literally Jesus the Christ, our Lord. The Christ, the anointed one, that's the idea, the Christos. He was the anointed one who rules and saves his people from their enemies. So Jesus is the one who saves his people from their sins, right? But as the Christ, he is the one, the messianic coming one, who would save his people from all his and their enemies. This is kingdom language. The Christ, it's a title. 
The Christ means, as I said, the anointed one. It speaks of Jesus' royal priestly anointing. Jesus asked his disciples, you remember, when, who they thought he was, Matthew 16. Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. At Jesus' interrogation by the Jews just before his crucifixion, the high priest demanded and said, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us if you are the long-awaited Messiah. Tell us if you're the one that was prophesied, who would, to whom the, the, the Son of David to whom the kingdom would come. Tell us if that's who you are, the Christ, the Son of God. Luke records on one occasion when Jesus cast out demons, um, that the demons cried out, and this is in Luke 4, he said, You are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus rebuked the demons and did not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. You see the idea of that title. The gospel is concerning his son, Jesus the Christ, the Savior, the anointed royal priest coming in Jesus' name, he, coming in the name of the Father. Isaiah 61 Good passage. Why don't you turn there real quick? Isaiah 61. This gives us a very, one of the most clear indications in the Old Testament of the vocation of what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. And Isaiah says here, and this is actually quoted in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. Jesus, you remember, stands in the synagogue and he takes up the scroll and he reads it and he goes to Isaiah 61. It says there that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty. So release from bondage to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God to all who mourn. And to console those who mourn in Zion and so on. He goes on and he talks in Isaiah 1, 61 about how they'll rebuild the old ruins. They're going to repair the former desolations in the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. The point is the Christ would come as the servant who would release his people from bondage to the evil one and bring them into a new kingdom. The kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus came proclaiming, right? The kingdom of God is near you. And that in doing so, it was going to involve allegiance and lordship to him as the sovereign king. And that through him, his people, the people of that kingdom, would be the ones through whom the covenants and the promises would come to pass and through whom the world would be restored. That's the idea of the Christ. He is the anointed Christ to bring that to pass. That's the gospel. He is our Lord, Paul says here. Again, this just gets back to the idea that as the Christ, we owe him, we are his, the obedience of faith. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 5, right here of Romans, we'll see in subsequent weeks. But he says here that in, in chapter 1 of 5 of Romans, he says that the gospel, the grace and apostleship they have received is to bring about the obedience to the faith, the obedience of faith among all nations for his name. Paul actually concludes Romans in chapter 16, verse 26 with the same thing, with the declaration there that this gospel that he has just preached to them, he says in chapter 16, verse 26, which had been hidden since the world began, but now been revealed by the mystery uh, of God through the prophets, he says, um, that these through the scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience of faith. 
Brethren, I want to tell you point blank, Lordship of Jesus is not a secondary side to the gospel of salvation. Brethren, the Lordship of Jesus is at the heart of salvation. There is no knowing Jesus as Savior and not knowing Him as Lord. There is no having half of Jesus to save you from the penalty of your sins if you don't also earnestly desire Him to save you from the power of your sins. There's no saying, I want to be part of Jesus' kingdom while also wanting to be part of the old kingdom. Brethren, allegiance to Jesus is whole and it's entire. He is our Lord. Paul says here that this declaration of Jesus as the Son of God is according to the spirit of holiness. That just means that Jesus embodied the perfect and complete purity, virtue of God and the fullness of grace and truth of the Godhead. Jesus' moral virtue on display in grace and truth in manifold perfection and balance was there for everybody to see. No man ever spake like this. No man acted like this. To see Jesus was to see the moral perfection, the virtue, the holiness of God. And there was none ever like that. So he came and was declared the Son of God because of his holiness of character and also by virtue of the fact of his resurrection from out of the dead. More on that in days to come. But the fact that, again, God has declared him and raised him up from the dead because death could not hold him. Brethren, had Jesus still remained dead, had he... No matter what he did, had he not come back from the dead, his claims to being the eternal Lord and sovereign would be justly invalidated, right? But Jesus was raised out of the dead, and he was given the keys of the kingdom, the keys of death and Hades, Revelation 118 says. He lives forever with his saints to reign, like the hymn says. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph or his foes, a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign because he is king. And that's why then it concludes here, and I'll conclude here with this declaration in verse 3b about Jesus being of the son of David according to the flesh. What's the point of that? The point is simply this, that the gospel of God is the good news that now after hundreds of years, thousands of years, God has acted to fulfill His plan and His promise that a king would come in the line of David. Think back to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. 9, verse 6 and 7. It says that the government would be on His shoulders. He would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace. There will be no end. And He goes on and says that Jesus there is the Messianic King coming from the line of David, ruling and reigning over the world, putting all of His enemies under His feet. Isaiah 11 says the same thing, that a root will come forth from the rod, the stem of Jesse. A branch will grow to bring about the promise that God made to David. No, David, you're not going to build for me a house. David, I'm going to build for you a house. And I'm going to raise up an everlasting son to be over that house. And it will be a house for my name. It will be one in which all the nations will be gathered, a house of prayer a house of blessing. I'm going to build a house for my name from the lineage of David. That's why it was so important that Jesus had to be born a true descendant of the lineage of David. Right? But he was. He is. So I'm just going to say this then, brethren. What's the implication of all this? I have told you nothing today that you haven't heard before. There's nothing innovative here today. What I gave you today 
I'm giving you is the, is the facts, the data about Jesus, who is the centerpiece of the gospel. So what do you do with this, though? As I've said, brethren, the call, love the Holy Scriptures, cherish the Holy Scriptures, that talk to us and speak to us about Jesus, that speak to us about His redemption. But brethren, above all else, and this goes for children, this goes for every one of you, so listen up. The call for you and I is radical, wholehearted allegiance to follow Jesus. Because every one of us, you who are old, me who is getting old, you children who are just starting your life journey, the day will come in which you will be tested by men. You'll be tested by God. You'll have crosses to take up. There will come days in which following Jesus will be hard. I want you to remember the truth about Jesus. I want you to love Jesus supremely more than anything in the world. I want him to be your chief and highest treasure. And I want you to say, I will follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. Jesus is the author and the finisher of my faith. So for the joy set before him and the joy set before me, I will run the race that he calls me to run, following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this glorious gospel we've heard today. Father, this is old truth. I've said nothing today again that we haven't all heard many times. Father, so often the gospel can become just data. It can just become points in our confession and our creed that don't transform us. But Father, the call for us at the beginning of the epistle of Romans as we consider everything else about the outworkings of this glorious gospel of God, the call is supreme, wholehearted, radical allegiance and life and death to Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. Father, please give us the grace because it is by grace that we are saved through faith. Father, give us the grace from the youngest to the oldest that by your sovereign power working through faith that you will keep and preserve us following faithfully our Lord Jesus Christ, loving and treasuring him as our supreme and highest treasure and good. Father, may we be truly people of the Lord Jesus. May we be faithful followers and disciples so that on that last day, every one of us here will hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord, to the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Father, make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.